Hello, Burlington, and welcome to Net Zero Energy. I'm Jennifer Green, Director of Sustainability for the City of Burlington, where our goal is to reduce and eventually eliminate fossil fuel usage. So today we have with us Betsy Lesnikowski, Chief Forester for the Burlington Electric Department, and Adam Sherman, Senior Consultant from the Vermont Energy Investment Corporation and a biomass expert. Adam and Betsy, we really appreciate you being here. Betsy, we did a a podcast with you about a year, a year and a half ago, and it seemed about time to come back for a second iteration of our conversation on McNeil. So really happy that Betsy's here as our chief forester. Adam, you are a senior consultant with the Vermont Energy Investment Corporation with a specialization in biomass. So I guess today's theme essentially is biomass in the big picture, McNeil more specifically. Betsy, can we maybe start with you? Tell us a little bit about sort of McNeil, what your role is. Remind listeners, please. I'm the chief forester at the McNeil Station. It's a 50-megawatt biomass wood-fired plant. Uh, We burn mostly residues from woods operations, what's left over from regular logging operations where the higher value products have been taken out and sold to other markets, saw logs, pulpwood, firewood, uh, and we get what's left over that does not have another home. So all the low-value material that can't be sold for a higher price elsewhere. So, Betsy, there, I think there's a perception that we're taking clear-cut wood from forests, but it's not, what you're saying is residual wood. Can you talk a little bit more about what that is? Uh, yes, we work with existing loggers, and the majority of the harvests they do are selective harvests, where only a quarter to a third of the wood is being cut each time. Uh, usually, uh, trees are marked ahead of time, and often there's a consulting forester involved at the same time, too. A lot of these are part of the state's use value program, current use plan that have management plans that have been written by consultants, approved by state foresters, and then our foresters make sure they're being followed correctly. So maybe we can take a step back. Adam, can you just talk about forests in Vermont in general? I think uh, they've waxed and waned over time. Is that not correct? We, we're, in other words, we haven't always been a heavily, heavily forested state the economy, as it changes, so does the state of our forests. Yeah, I mean, going back <clears throat> 200 years, I mean, Vermont was 80% deforested, and like sheep farming was a big driver of that um, through the turn of the century in the 1900s into the 1950s. Uh, Vermont became reforested and got to about 78%, and uh, our forests are growing each year and adding more tree and new growth. And so there are programs with the state of Vermont and the U.S. Forest Service that measure forest growth and the composition of the forest and the health of the forest, and then look at that rate of growth compared to how much harvesting happens. And so in Vermont, for the last um, five, six decades, we have had a two to one growth to removal ratio Um, which means that our forests are growing twice as much wood annually as what is harvested currently. Can you talk about the value add of harvesting and what that means for a family and how it's an economic driver that keeps our forests essentially intact? 
you know, Vermont is 86% privately owned. And so the portion that's publicly owned is quite small. And so, you know, forest management plays a, a vital opportunity in keeping a working landscape. And so because in everyday life, we consume forest products. They're all around us in our buildings, um, you know, tissue paper. Um, we, 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 as human beings, consume um, products from trees every day. And so um, we, we have this resource which provides clean air and clean water, um, biodiversity, wildlife habitat, aesthetics, but also because as our society consumes these products, um, sourcing them closer to home, it's, it's like farming. I mean, people think about agriculture in the working landscape. It, as Vermonters, like we drive down the road, we see a farm, you know, the, you know there's, a, there's a silo and there's a tractor in the field and you see all this activity. It's part of like our visual understanding of the working landscape in Vermont. But the reality is 78% of the forest of the land in Vermont is forest. And that's also part of the working landscape. And so, um, but there's kind of this invisibility of like what happens in the woods and that, that there are these activities happening. There is management and the management is by and large really done well with private landowners who are trying to achieve a, a future forest condition that balance, balances these objectives of um, aesthetics, wildlife, firewood, paying you know, your property taxes. And it's a mixture of kind of the ecology and the practicality and, and creating a local economy around what we have in our own backyard. And, and, and there have been some great studies that have happened over the years, um, one out of uh, Harvard, that, that showed like if you lock up and conserve land and you aren't managing these forests and periodically harvesting them in accordance with management plans, that it just shifts the resource burden on somewhere else and, and, and creates unsustainable practices happening elsewhere, whether that be like within the region or within the country or from some other part of the world. In the case of McNeil, as Betsy mentioned, we take the scrap wood from that high-end used harvesting and we, we burn it in McNeil. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Can you talk a little bit about biogenic carbon versus other forms of carbon? You know, I think there's there's this common misconception that like if you build a facility that um, people, private landowners will rip up their management plans and be like, oh, well, you know, I better just like hand over my trees to McNeil so they can come in and chip it up and and burn it. Um, th that's not how it happens. So I think there's, there's this this notion that like the market dictates the forest management and it's the other way around. And I think that's a really common misconception where um, what trees are marked are to remove certain trees to stimulate the growth of other trees to achieve a future forest condition. And so if you don't have a local viable market for that low-grade wood, what happens is the economic pressure is to cherry pick all the really nice high quality straight trees that have the most value and then leave nothing but junk behind, which is fine ecologically, but over time, if there's no economic value 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, for, for that to have a timber value to the landowner, then that 
owner has no means to like pay their property taxes on a thousand acre parcel. So it gets subdivided into smaller parcels and then it gets developed because that's the highest you know, outcome if you don't have a viable managed forest. And so by having a market for low grade wood, a logger can come in and thin out some of the low quality trees to stimulate the growth of the, of the higher value trees and have that as a, as a revenue stream for long-term forest management so that I don't have to like sell my parcel um, for development. I can pass that on to my kids and like they can be stewards of that land. What I would add to uh, that is the fact that at McNeil, we have very strict standards, harvesting standards, part of our permit. We have to work with the Fish and Wildlife Department to be sure we're not impacting deer yards, wetland, threatened and endangered species, that if those exist on the site, we are at least protecting, if not improving them. We have to be sure that the harvests have a management plan that, as Adam said, looks at the future of the forest to improve it. Then they're being sure that the uh, erosion control is in place, that streams are buffered, wetlands are taken care of. So it's not just opening the gate, bring in what you've got. We're, we're very sensitive to what's happening on the site. We haven't talked specifically about carbon, and I know this has come up before. So can you tell us, Adam, I, VEIC was contracted to do a study to look at carbon emissions from McNeil versus natural gas. So what would you say to someone who says, yeah, but you're burning wood at McNeil and that's no better than natural gas? It's hard to put into a 30-second response, but I'll, I'll do my best to, to boil it down, but there will be a certain amount of simplicity, um, so I have to provide that caveat. Forests both sequester and emit carbon. So oftentimes, I think people think of forests as like this one-way ticket. We're just sinking carbon, and it's a perpetual, there's no limit to how much those forests can absorb. But um, forests are like a, a bathtub. Um, you, you can fill it, but there's a threshold where it starts spilling over, and there's a drain um, that, that you can maybe control. Um, but there's a very finite amount of carbon that can be stored. In general, um, younger forests growing have a lot of capacity to con continue to grow and to sequester or absorb more carbon than they emit. But they're, they're perpetually both absorbing and releasing carbon. This is the, you know, the natural carbon cycle that we all learned about in sixth grade science class. For the McNeil Station, we've done a study that quantified the portion of the emissions that are non-biogenic that are like, you know, how much fossil fuel does it take to run a skitter and for the chipper and then the truck that brought the chips into the McNeil station or the train that brought the chips into the McNeil station. And then to account for the, um, the, the greenhouse gas emissions that are, that are released from uh, combustion that aren't CO2. Um, so, so there's essentially a, um, there is a very quantifiable carbon emission uh, equivalent uh, that you can put a number on for the fuel, which doesn't fundamentally include the biogenic portion, um, just because that CO2 would eventually make it back into the atmosphere. So if like, you know, you didn't cut a tree and ship it up and bring it to the McNeil and make electrons out of it, eventually, 
not you know tomorrow or the next day, but eventually that amount of CO2 would eventually get back into the atmosphere and then it would be reabsorbed by forest growth. And you know, so the whole premise of um, this system and the balance is predicated on, okay, well, within a region, as long as we're not um, deforesting our land and losing huge amounts of forest land, and our forests are growing more wood than um, we're currently harvesting, then you have this um, balance between what's being emitted and what's being absorbed. Betsy, when we do our tour of McNeil, I've heard you refer, refer to the three S's. So I do like to talk about the three S's of carbon. The first one is sequestration. And as Adam said, younger, actively growing forests actually sequester more carbon from the atmosphere. Then there's storage. And so we have bigger trees on site that actually store more carbon. So in our harvesting, we try to have a mix across the landscape of younger, fast-growing trees and older, slower-growing but bigger trees to store more. And then my third S is substitution. And so we are substituting fossil fuel, natural gas, or oil to make electricity by using uh, biomass. So it's a substitution. We're using a above ground carbon versus fossil fuels from below ground. This is maybe not the time and place, but I think the other misconception is that, well, let's just replace McNeil, let's do solar and wind. And this whole idea of McNeil as a dispatchable resource. Yeah, the importance of McNeil being dispatchable means we can store fuel on site we can run at night when the sun's not out, on a cloudy day, a snowy day, a quiet day when there's no wind. We have the resource there. McNeil is unique because we store the biomass on site, and we make sure that we have enough to run through long time periods. In the yard, so that's like a big battery. I mean, that's energy storage right there. So we oftentimes think about like, you know, these huge battery banks that we're going to have to, you know, balance out the, the supply between wind and solar. But a cord of wood on a, an energy value is the equivalent of uh, 312 Gen 2 Tesla power walls in one cord of wood. So one of the things that's come up is the particular matter as a negative externality of burning wood, both sort of at the household, residential level. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that, Adam, because I have a pellet stove at home. I'd like to know a little bit more about that. Um, but Betsy from McNeil, so remind us when we see smoke, quote unquote, what is that? And tell us about particulate matter. So what you see coming from the plant, for the most part, is from the cooling towers and its water vapor, yeah, evaporating as the, the steam is cooled to be recycled back into the plant to create electricity. The flue gases that we have go through an electrostatic precipitator, which pulls out particulate matter, uh, is fly ash, which is actually transported to farmers as an organic fertilizer. There are state and federal standards our emissions are well, well below those. So Betsy Lesnikowski, Chief Forester, Burlington Electric, Adam Sherman, Senior Consultant at the Vermont Energy Investment Corporation and biomass expert, we so appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much. 
Thank you, Jen. Thank you. Thank you again for listening to Net Zero Energy. If you have any questions about this podcast or what BED offers regarding incentives, rebates, or technological support, look for us at burlingtonelectric.com or call us at 802-865-7300. You can also follow us on Facebook. We're always here to help and look forward to engaging with you on our mutual path to net zero energy. Thank you.